You don't need to be a bioengineer to help change the shape of humanity. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to Trans. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Sometimes in your life, you have friends who are like, I hit it. I, I made a ton of money on something or even just a little bit of money. And it increasingly feels like that voice comes from crypto more than anywhere else. And I had a friend like that. And then I started telling you about this story. And you were like, well, wait a second. We can we can do that in trillions. Yeah, no, we, we, we like talking to the people. Um, so much of the financial media is analysts and industry people talking to each other. And so usually when we do those episodes, it resonates a lot with people because they can relate to an actual investor doing it themselves. Um, and because if you're listening to this, you're probably a do-it-yourself investor or an advisor. So I think it's a really good type of guest to have on. And I, I agree with you. Crypto, I mean, what can you say? Everybody's very aware of what crypto is. But I will say I was at the uh, kitty park the other day with my youngest. And this one guy was like, oh, yeah, see that guy over there? He got into uh, Bitcoin or Ether. I forget which coin it was, but, you know, he was like, oh, yeah, but back in like uh, 2014, you know, he's like, it's just like, it's like a stuff of legends now if you got in early and it's a whole thing. So clearly this is a major area and it's taking over uh, a lot of the ETF markets in other parts of the country. And soon it will be a big deal in the U.S. when they approve a spot ETF. But there's other ways to get access, which we'll uh, look at today. So my friend's name is Shar Boger. I've known her since junior high. We also went to high school uh, and college together. We're from Oregon originally. She's in California. And very specifically, she's into Bitcoin mining, which um, there's a ETF that we also found that I also found out about through you and her that we're also going to have the guy behind that ETF, uh, the co-founder, Ethan Vera at Veridi Funds joined to talk about that side of the business. Look, this is going to be learning for both of us. We we know a lot less than Ethan and a lot less than Char. Yeah, I mean, Char, to be clear, has fully disclosed that she spends upwards of like eight hours a day <laughs> researching Bitcoin miners. So in effect, we're going to have you and me and then Char, who's basically the voice of a retail investor, along with somebody who's brought not only an ETF to market for Bitcoin mining, but also does a mining pool. So this will be an interesting one because we've never had a retail investor at a mic with us doing some interviews. I'm going to learn a ton about Bitcoin mining because I know almost nothing. I know, I know uh, Eric knows very little as well. It'll be a fun one. This time on Trillions, Bitcoin mining ETFs. Ethan, Shar, welcome to Trillions. Thanks for having us on. Thank you. Excited. Ethan, I want to start with you because you've been into Bitcoin mining longer than I knew it existed, I think. 
So, so what exactly do you do? And talk to us about this transition into the CTF. Yeah, so I'm not as OG as Eric alluded to. I didn't join the 2014 class, but I did start a, a Bitcoin mining company in, in 2017. I was still going to college at the time and basically spent the weekends flying down to Kansas City to set up a mining farm. So uh, coming from like a finance software background, I wanted to get hands on and actually learn the, the process of what it takes to set up one of these farms. It ended up going terribly wrong. I, I, I often cite that there's two things you shouldn't do in this world. One is a, attack Russia in the wintertime. And the second is launch a mining farm in Kansas City in the summer. And I happened to make that mistake. Um, shortly after that, I started focusing on uh, mining pool software. And along with some co-founders, we, we built Luxor mining pool into one of the largest mining pools globally. It's currently number top. It's number 10 in the world and number two in, in North America. We also do things like ASIC brokerage. So we help investors get access to, to buy machines. We launch other software products. And then most recently, uh, in March of last year, we launched a new company called Vridi Funds, which is an asset manager specifically focused on Bitcoin miners and launched the first Bitcoin mining ETF on the New York Stock Exchange. Okay, so let's just dig into mining for a minute. I, when someone says Bitcoin mining, this is what, I mean, this is, the, the, I, I did learn a little more about it, but when before I did, I just pictured a big, like, bunch of computers and I, you know, I actually thought that the it was spitting out some kind of equation that you had to solve, like the chalkboard at Goodwill Hunting or something that like only a computer could do. And then I found out it's not really that. Um, and I know I'm probably gonna get a lot of crap for saying that, but that's the truth. That's what I thought. And my colleague James educated me to a degree. But can you just explain what are these computers doing and how do they get Bitcoin for doing it? Yeah. So b before I jump into the technology behind it and, and the calculation, um, Bitcoin mining is the backbone of Bitcoin. It serves as the consensus mechanism that allows for new transactions to be added to the network and blocks to be secured. And so there is no Bitcoin without the mining process. It's really pivotal to it. In terms of what these machines are doing, so the machines that are securing the network are purpose-built for one purpose only, which is mining Bitcoin and other SHA-256 variants. And so they're, they're built uh, what's called an application-specific integrated circuit, an ASIC for short, and they can only solve this one type of equation. What the machines are doing is they're running through a trapdoor function uh, known as the hashing algorithm and guess and checking, brute force guess and checking uh, inputs in order to achieve an output that would result in a valid block. And so a new generation uh, hardware can do 110 trillion guesses per second. So you plug it in, it puts in 110 trillion inputs and shoots out 110 trillion outputs. And the goal is for one of those outputs to be a valid block and add a new block to the blockchain in order to add the new transactions and secure it. Again, you, it, it's more about guessing. And that's where I, I Joel, I, I really didn't realize that. I thought I kept hearing equation and solving, but it's really just guessing and just how many numbers can you, different uh, order of the numbers and, and I guess characters until you hit the exact match. It almost seems like, like again, code breaking or something out of a, like trying to uh, basically break open a, a safe or something. Correct. Yeah. And that's why the application specific integrated circuits, the ASICs, are so much more powerful than GPUs or CPUs or any supercomputers for that matter, because they're so specific to this one task. Um, the, the hashing algorithm is a trapdoor function. So you know what you want to receive on the output, but you don't know which input would result in that. And so you, the only way to get through it is to brute force. Okay, Shara, I, I want to bring you in. I, I've talked to you enough about this to know that you haven't gone full crypto. 
But what was it about Bitcoin mining that made you go, you know, I can do stocks, I can do whatever I want, but like I, I'm gonna I'm gonna double down on this Bitcoin mining space. What what drew you in as an as a retail investor? So I was at the point in my portfolio where I was looking for a little bit more risk. Um, I was actually just looking for emerging markets and I went down, you know, the rabbit hole with genomics and, you know, electric cars. Um, and I ultimately landed on Bitcoin mining and Bitcoin at first. I, you know, started uh, stacking sats, if you will. And then I just became completely fascinated with the economics and the emerging industry. There's literally never a dull moment. Something new happens every day. In addition to, yes, it being a lucrative investment for me, um, it's better than any soccer mom soap opera. You could be sitting on the couch and folding laundry. <laughs> I've made so many good friends and I've learned so much about Bitcoin. Uh, I just, I don't even, I can't even explain uh, the adventure I've been on in the last two and a half years. And as that pertains to ETFs, there really weren't any back then. You know, I had to dig deep and, and figure out what miners were were more um, efficient, which ones had better management, which ones had lower electricity costs, which one had newer miners. You know, um, I, I have like a million questions for Ethan because he's kind of low key, one of the probably most informed people on uh, uh, Bitcoin mining economics. Let's do this then. So okay. you've invested in one company in particular, Hut8, right? And I, I liken this to like the dilemma that in, any investor faces is like, okay, do you do you go long on, on one company that you're especially fond of or do you diverse, mm -hmm. find an instrument that you can diversify with? So you've done yeah. a ton of research um, on uh -huh. individual companies. What do you want to know about an ETF for, for Ethan? What kind of questions do you have for him? I think for me is... Uh, how well how do you weight your basket right so there's certainly some economic factors you can look at when you're comparing these miners what we've seen so far is that twitter has loved the hash rate based metrics so determining how much compute power these each of them own or their revenue or the megawatts deployed what i would mm -hmm. say is that you really want to start looking a little bit further down the pnl mostly because that really showcases two things one the operational efficiency of the hardware that they're running Miners that are running latest gen equipment released in you know 2021 are, are better suited than ones that are running 2017 hardware. And second, it shows their, their cost of power, which is a very important factor for these miners. And so looking at kind of metrics that are further down the PNL is quite important and not only looking at pure compute power or revenue numbers. Um, there's, there's certainly other economic decisions that we look at when, when looking at determining the valuation of a miner and which miners are good to allocate to. But there's also a lot of qualitative factors. Right now, there is a, two different real school of thoughts between miners. One is I want to own the entire stack and be vertically integrated from the energy production, the infrastructure to the mining. And then the other school of thought is I, my best use of capital is deploying it only into miners. And to give tangible examples, maybe a marathon digital is in that camp where they allocate 100% of their capital into ASIC machines, where somebody like uh, Bit Farms or Riot owns their own farms. And so they're investing capital into both infrastructure and ASICs. And so depending on your views in the market and how it's going to play out, that will determine whether you think strategy A or strategy B is going to be the better long-suited play. 
I don't know if there is like a clear, you know, winner here in the long run. Right. I would say that if you are allocating more capital to machines, you're going to do very well in a bull market, but you're going to be less resilient when that Bitcoin price falls. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So what are your thoughts on Iris and Iron and how they are basically just, you know, selling all of their Bitcoin to build infrastructure? And so how that kind of they have a completely different strategy than, you know, where Mara doesn't own the infrastructure. They just own the machines and then they hodl. And then, you know, then there's Hut8 and BitFarms where they they own some of the infrastructure, not all of it. And then, you know, they own their machines and then they hodl their Bitcoin. What are your thoughts on those three different strategies? And I, and I feel the same. I don't really think there's going to be a clear winner. Maybe there will be. I don't know. Um, but, I, but I'm also seeing that with the ETFs where like, you know, you guys have the semiconductors as, as the adjacent, another what is it? Uh, the Valkyrie one is um, green energy. And then the future of finance at Grayscale is the one that is more sort of like financial payment plans. So what are your thoughts on that and how that is going to evolve the different strategies? Yeah. So I think each strategy has its own validity. Uh, talking to the first question, which is Iris selling the Bitcoin in which they mine every day. If you, if you look at uh, other commodity producers, for example, gold producers, they don't hold gold on their balance sheet. The, their exposure to gold is their ongoing revenue, and then they sell that to USD or Canadian every day. Um, and so there, there is a, a, an approach from some of the Bitcoin miners, and BitFarms was the early one in 2018, where, where our exposure to Bitcoin is in our future revenue and the machines on our balance sheet. We don't need to take a third risk, which is also our treasury. And so that strategy is very useful in bear markets where the Bitcoin price is going down. 
but in bull markets, like we saw over the past 2021, uh, the companies that held more Bitcoin on their balance sheet ended up performing better because they, you know, uh, were, were benefited from that, you know, accumulating Bitcoin and the appreciation of that asset. And so I think each strategy has its own merits, but they will perform differently in, in, in different markets. Um, one thing that people don't really look at is the value of the machines on the balance sheet. In 2021, the value of a machine was $40 a terahash. By the end of the year, it was 90. It actually outperformed the price of Bitcoin itself. So here, these miners are sitting with millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions in hardware that is very closely tied to the price of Bitcoin. And so that does represent significant exposure uh, as well there. Um, so that kind of talks to like the points of like Marathon and holding Bitcoin and miners on their balance sheet. Um, in terms of the, the semiconductor exposure and rigs ETF, so our, our ETF invests in both Bitcoin miners as well as adjacent markets like the semiconductors. Um, we did this for, for two main reasons. One, ETFs have very strict uh, diversification rules. The amount of Bitcoin miners in the universe last year was not large enough to launch a specific Bitcoin mining ETF. And so we had to include some bigger names in there for the purpose of the ETF structure. But more than anything, we think it does represent a big part of the overall industry. Uh, Bitcoin mining is so fascinating because it sits in what I see as like the two most impactful and interesting markets of the next decade. On one hand, you have semiconductor manufacturers, which has all these like geopolitical implications with China and Taiwan. And then the other side, you have energy infrastructure build out with renewable energy push, battery storage, everything. And kind of proof of work, Bitcoin mining sits like smack dab right in the middle of those two. Um, so it's a it's a really fascinating place for for Bitcoin mining to be a part of, and that's kind of why we allocated a bit to semiconductors there. I love it. I guess that kind of leads into my um, another question I have um, in regards to supporting Bitcoin mining and supporting the grid energy grid, um, like like we're seeing it with Air Aircot in Texas. I was telling Joel the other day. I, I think it's a really going to be an interesting like test example on how how that can be done efficiently. And uh, I, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are, like what you see moving forward with that, uh, maybe across the country and North America in general. Almost every miner that we work with in North America is trying to participate in what we call demand response, where they're not acting as a stable load on the grid. They're acting in, instead as an optional load on the grid. And so that means that when the grid has excess energy, um, they can sell that to the crypto miner. But when they have a, a, a lack of supply and over over demand, then they can take away from it. Um, let me step in here. I want to go back to just a sort of day in the life. If you're a miner and you have, I mean, I, I guess there's all kinds of miners, but let's just say the company you have. What are you doing all day? Obviously, these computers are, are doing this, as you call it, blunt force guesswork. Um, are you just making sure they stay on? Are you looking at the actual results? And what's it like when there's a hit? Like, does everybody cheer? Is there like a siren that goes off? <laughs> it's one of those red flashing lights, like you're in a hockey. Uh... Yeah, or like a Ghostbusters when they found a ghost or something. And like, or I guess a fire, a firehouse. Yeah, no, it's a really good question. So the companies that don't own their own infrastructure run relatively uh, lean teams. There was companies out there with a few billion dollar market caps with less than 10 people on their entire staff. What those people mostly were, were they were raising money in capital markets, talking to investors, legal work, making allocation decisions of which machines to buy. So it's a very low uh, input business if you're purely running your machines on somebody else's infrastructure. 
you'll make the decision, okay, I want to buy 10,000 machines from Bitmain. I'm going to send them to this farm in Texas. These guys are going to run them for me. Whereas if you own your own infrastructure, now you have this other layer of complexity where you need construction teams, you need on the ground operations teams that are monitoring the machines. Um, and, and, and of course, the capital markets and legal side as well. And so those types of companies will employ more people. Um, the machines, uh, the new generation machines are relatively stable. So if you plug in uh, top of the line Bitmain machine and a good facility, you're not expecting that to go down immediately, but you can expect like a 1% failure rate across the year on these machines in which you need to start an RMA process, send it back to the manufacturer for warranty, replace the fans, whatever it may be. Um, so there is some amount of babysitting to do it. Our, our company isn't a miner per se because we run the software, but we do own 600 machines right now. And we have one person that monitors all 600. So um, it, it doesn't require a ton of human capital, but it does require you know a, a little bit. And then just back to the question, um, if there is a hit and how often does it hit and how excited do people get? Like, we just go, can you just take us into that moment? Yeah, this is a rabbit hole for us to go down. Uh, what, what, what my like, company, do we want to <laughs> well, talk about the mining pool or do we want to go down that direction? Well, here we go. So, Let's go halfway down, halfway down. We don't want to go all the way. My, uh, my, my company, Luxor, runs what's called a mining pool. Uh, what we do is we aggregate hash rate from multiple uh, miners across the world so that the chances of a hitting block increases. The chance of anyone singularly hitting a block by themselves is very low because there's only 144 blocks per day. And so the four of us would pull together our, each of our computers and the chances we hit a block in, improves. And then we, we dish out the reward uh, equally between us. Um, now to add one step of complexity on top of that, what Luxor does as a mining pool is we stabilize those earnings. So what we do is we pay you out based on the expected earnings rather than the actual. The simplest analogy I can do is a lottery. Imagine that you have one lottery ticket out of 10 lottery tickets and the total lottery is worth $10. The expected value of your ticket is $1, right? In reality, it'll be worth $0 nine times out of 10 and then 10 one time out of 10 likely. But what Luxor will do is we'll buy that ticket from you right off the bat. We'll, we'll say, hey, we'll come to you. We'll buy that for 98 cents. So we take that I two see. cents expected value and you get paid so, out regardless. That diminishes the excitement. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks well, a lot. I wanted something. I wanted people jumping up and down, <laughs> hugging each other. I guess it, you've ruined it with the system, but it makes sense, I guess. Well, now well, we got to do that all internally. So we just, yeah. you know, we stole all the fun. Or, or, or when the China exodus happened, all of our North American miners had a better statistical chance of winning the block. And so all of them made a lot of money. And now we're seeing all that hash come back on. So it's kind of like, wah, wah. But yeah, that was exciting. Yeah, mining economics still improve. So Ethan, <laughs> yeah. Ethan I, want, I want to just ask, like, when you talk to somebody who's not got exposure to, to Bitcoin or, or even Bitcoin mining, how, how do you explain it to them that this is something that they should be, be maybe more aware of? How do you how do you how do you speak to the the non crypto universe? Yeah, um, so when it comes to like talking to people about Bitcoin, I get very philosophical. Um, you know, I'm talking to them about uh, independence when it comes to the financial system inclusion. Uh, it's really like the internet, but for the financial system, and we're starting to see that play out across like various uh, events, like the GoFundMe and, and the truckers in Canada and whatnot. So. 
uh, people are starting to really get it, uh, even in the West, where historically we haven't had a large distrust for our government like they do in places like South America and, and, and some other parts of the world. Um, so I, I think that's the, the part that I really hit on with, with investors into Bitcoin is this is an entirely new financial system that isn't governed by any single individual or corporation. And that is extremely powerful to have as a backup to our existing system. Maybe our existing system works, maybe it doesn't, but having a backup is valuable um, in case it fails. And what do you get with the mining exposure? Like, what, why, why double down on, on rigs instead of something else that's crypto adjacent? So there's a few different ways to get exposure to Bitcoin mining. There's buying a machine yourself, plugging it in. There's buying hash rate contracts, hash rate tokens, and then there's investing in the publicly listed uh, miners. The first three are more like dividend plays. So you buy a machine and you're earning Bitcoin on day one that's flowing into your wallet. And so it's a very different investment profile than investing in the equity of a company. Specifically on the equity of a company, I think it's valuable for a few reasons. One, it can be tax efficient. So you can put it in your 401k and these tax-free savings accounts. And then two, it acts as actually a high levered play on Bitcoin itself. Uh, what we've seen over the past uh, few years is that the public equities have some torque on the underlying commodity, much like senior gold producers do on gold. Um, and so if, if Bitcoin goes up, you know, 2%, we'll see the miners go up some multiple of that, which is also true on the way down, by the way, too. So it can yeah. be quite painful. Well, and, well uh, just, just to that end, like, I just want to talk about, you know, the past few weeks have been, I'm sure your stomach, you know, the roller coaster has gone down. You know, your, your price in November was up close to 55. It's now about, you know, less than half that. And I'm, I'm just curious, like, what's it like to take that ride? I mean, you've had the CTF for for less than a year even, right? And you've you've experienced a high and now you're down to the low. Like, what's that like? It's tough. Uh, we've done it over the past four and a half years. I remember in March, 2020, when Bitcoin hit three and a half K, I was in the gym, just like looking at my phone. I called my co-founder. I was like, is this all over? Like the past two and a half years, like it's coming to an end here. So uh, it's definitely not for, for the faint of heart. There's a lot of volatility now. The asset class is still very nascent. It's a small market cap. So I, I would just caution investors that there is going to be a lot of volatility uh, and sometimes it doesn't work out in your favor. But if you're a long-term believer in the, in the space, then you should start allocating it. So this is fascinating, this volatility, you know, we, we would consider a, a Bitcoin mining ETF hot sauce. And typically it is applied on top of a very boring vanilla buy and hold portfolio in small portions. Therefore you can stomach the heat uh, because it's not your main thing. And I guess I'll, I'll go back to Shar on this. You're obviously very into this, but it, it, this isn't your whole like retirement savings, right? Or is this a, is this hot sauce for you? Or like what, I guess, how much are you applying here? Uh, it's definitely um, my high risk portfolio, which is a very small percentage of my net worth. That being said, I I really do believe in in the industry, and I think that as as more Bitcoin, as there's more mass adoption of Bitcoin, that it will become less volatile. I was listening; I can't remember what podcast. I think it might have been the Fidelity one with Urin, and he said that the um, that it was just as uh, what was the sharp ratio was the same as a sixty forty because of the increase in value of Bitcoin over time versus the volatility, it's actually the same, which I found fascinating. Um, and so I think like for me with the miners, I started buying them two and a half years ago. So I bought Argo for less than a dollar. That had a, like a huge, like 
uptick it brought my net worth up a ton and then I rebalanced. Um, there are times when it's very frustrating because you're like, oh, my portfolio was this and now it's that. Um, but over time, it, inev- it inevitably just continues to go up. It's kind of like the same experience you have if you've um, been in- invested in Bitcoin for many years. Is like you just get used to it and you don't really think. I don't think in terms of what the share price is. I think in terms of how many shares I have. And then I've just disciplined myself to buy more on red days versus buy into the momentum. And then I just hold. And if if something gets really overweighted, at one point I had a lot of hut eight. Um, I have trimmed those positions and opened a position in Core Scientific, um, a position in Iris, a position in Mara, which I never did because when I started investing, Mara was a patent troll and they were involved in a lawsuit. And I just was not quite sure where they were going or who their management was. And so well, so this is an this is an interesting thing because you effectively spread capital before an ETF was available. You were spreading your your assets around a little bit, right, on things that you could research. So, what what would keep you from from an ETF like Rigs as a retail Honest, investor? Well, I actually do own some Rigs, and as these ETF ETFs have uh, started to emerge. I'll probably contribute more to rigs. And then as well, I really like the Grayscale Future Finance. Um, and they both offer exposure to different areas in the market um, because it's nice. Someone else is doing the work for me finally. <laughs> I don't have to do it myself. Um, yeah. And then I can just learn more. Support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. 25 years ago, Invesco QQQ rethought the investing landscape by providing access to the NASDAQ's 100 most innovative companies all in one ETF. What's ahead for the next 25 years? Could it be flying cars, neural implants, electric planes? No one knows for sure, but one thing's for certain. You can gain access to that progress with Invesco QQQ ETF. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents. People who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. On Twitter, sometimes, especially on financial Twitter, there's people who 
just seem to get a lot out of studying the markets. And some of the passive investors are like, why would you do that? You're like, you could have all this free time. Now that there is an ETF or you found these ETFs that satisfy, you know, what you think are good and providing a basket. And obviously the diversification is good because some will win, some will lose. And this way your, your volatility goes down and your risk goes down. Do you enjoy it enough where you actually would like to keep doing it? Or does the e- or is the ETF going to make, like, I guess, free up your time and you're happy about that? Yeah, you get eight hours a day back, Char. Yeah, I mean, that's no, a I lot don't... of time. I think what I'm, are you going to do I, with I, yourself? I have come, I've managed our family's finances in our, in, our, in our portfolio for 14 years. And I've come to the realization that I'm actually actively interviewing a family office right now because I don't want to do all the other stuff. Um, and because I actually just love the Bitcoin, Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. And I spend so much time learning about it that I, I find myself less interested in like the day-to-day boring, like money management. So I'm going to take the majority of my net worth and just take it off my shoulders, which is really nice. And then as far as uh, an ETF, it'll just be nice to have in, in the small amount of money that I, my high risk portfolio, I want to keep under my management. And I, I want to put chunks of that into the ETFs, but continue to research because it's changing every day so fast. So I think it'll always be a mix for me and it's constantly evolving. And I think for me, like for me to buy Mara was a huge deal because for so long I was like, no way. And then I, I, they've really proved themselves to, to have their sort of their strategy work for them. Um, and so I guess I've kind of trusted them a little bit more over time with my money. Um, so yeah, no, moving forward, I just, I think it gives me more time to, to research the things that I want to research. Like I have barely scratched the surface with mining pools because I've just been wrapping my head around mining in general and the economics behind, you know, publicly traded companies, I feel like I could, I'm going to spend the next year learning about that. Ethan, real quick, speaking of time, uh, at some point that all the Bitcoin will be mined, correct? And then what happens to these miners? Yeah. So in, in 2140, there will be no new uh, block issuance. And so uh, until then, the the mining revenue is subsidized by the network in the form of newly minted coins. So that's in 118 years. But it, every four years, it decreases significantly. So in the next 10 years, it'll be very small. Uh, after 2140, the only amount of revenue going to the miners will be through transaction fees. If I send you Bitcoin right now, I'll include a little bit of Bitcoin in it that will go to the miners. And so in order for the network to continue the, the growth that it has in, in security of compute power, we need to see an uptick in Bitcoin price for, for that to continuously be secured at the level it is today. So I want to bring it back to Riggs then. You know, if if we had been talking to you a couple of years ago and, you know, you could have forecast what where you've where you've gone now. Right. Just, you know, imagine fast forwarding into the future. What, what do you think Riggs is going to look like in, you know, give it three years? What, what's the space going to look like? What are you going to be investing in? So uh, one of the reasons we chose to go active management was f- for that reason. We want a mandate to really react to market cycles. And we hired uh, Wes Fulford, who is the old CEO of BitFarms, knows the mining industry like pretty much no other. And he is the portfolio manager of the fund. Um, so it really allows him flexibility to kind of attack some of these opportunities that we see in the market. 
moving forward, I guess three years is hard to determine, but I think over the next year, you'll start to see a lot of new entrants come in. There's a lot of SPACs and IPOs on their way, um, as well as a lot of the Chinese mining giants moving over to the US. I think those represent really good opportunities because they typically trade at a discount to the American peers, mostly because of their communication and, and, and other uh, perceived notation of them. But they're massive companies with a lot of access to capital and expertise in building over the past five years. So I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity in the next year or so to invest in the Chinese names versus some of the American names are the ones that we all know today as the marathons and the core size and the rise of the world. All right. Okay. Um, I have one last one though, Joel. This okay, is go ahead. completely off go ahead. topic, but we got someone who went to high school with you, so I gotta. Oh, I can't geez. let this go. Char, <laughs> oh. um, you know what was Joel like? Like, what group was he in, and how much has he changed since high school? You know, Joel could really get along with any of the groups. He was definitely uh, the smart, the smart kid, but he also uh, played sports, and you know, he didn't. He was pretty straight laced. Uh, but he in college could definitely rage. We had some good times. <laughs> so he, um, he like, in other words, he was he was one of those kids that was like kind of pent up, and he hit college and he went wild to well, a degree. From well, from my point of view, because I I did my I did some partying in high school, and I remember seeing him at a at a he was in a fraternity. I remember seeing him at a Kager at his fraternity, and he was uh, having a good time. And I thought, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. Yep. Okay. Yep. <laughs> I've known guys like that. I, no, I, no I started like junior year of high school, so I, I kind of had a little uh, head start into college, but definitely Me college too. is where I think most people start to go a little wild. Yeah. yeah. That's why it's the but best. It's, it was completely healthy, though, for him. <laughs> he uh, has always uh, maintained uh, balance. Really balance, yeah. <laughs> discipline which is why i co-host a, a, a <laughs> podcast called trillions about etfs yep uh, uh okay i want to i want to ethan i want to give you um the the final question it's a question we often ask guests on on trillions what's your favorite etf ticker other than your own favorite etf ticker um maybe not to give one of our competitors a shout out but uh WGMI is is a nice one they got there, and I, I love the like meme factor ones, which really speaks to like how the market is is looking these days. Um, it's really easy for traditional investors to like overlook uh, how impactful memes can be, and that's why we went with rigs too. Um, so yeah, any, anyone with a meme, I'm I'm a fan of. All right, Char, Ethan, thanks so much for joining us on Trillions. Thanks Thank for having you. us on. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Bye. This podcast is made possible by Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary. Not realizing its potential, however, could be. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? 
With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.